0: All profit is value extraction and that means that all profit is theft
1: from you. Corporate America is on welfare and, and they you've got to get them off welfare.
2: And what's that for? Okay, I think we are recording now. Cool.
1: Yeah, welcome to Cars and Comrades, the first anarcho-Stalinist automotive podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Where we we tow the anarcho-Stalinist party line. (laughs) That's the ideology that you just
2: made up five minutes ago, right?
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a, con- I'm a convert from Marxist Bidenism. <laughs> uh,
3: off to a great start.
0: Uh, yeah,
1: yeah Anarch- I'm really anarcho-Stalinism. That, that's that's. <laughs> it's it's the policies of Stalin, but without the well thought out planning. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah it's stalin minus uh... the science (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, it's mostly about vibes
2: the the mortal science
1: (laughs) the the highly (laughs) mortal science (sighs) uh okay for real though welcome to cars and comrades the the podcast that i love to derail (laughs) uh i'm your host for for the day brandon here, here here with here with me are, are Zach, Bryant, and Connor. And uh Hello. we're gonna do a quick intro here before we get right into the potatoes of the episode. Uh what's everybody worked on this week? Let's start with you, Zach.
0: Oh man, I got big news. I'm glad you started with me. Uh I finally got yeah, my you
1: softball there, bud.
0: Oh uh, yeah. I'm just gonna knock this one right out. I finally got my Audi uh S4 running that has been non-operational for close to five years, uh, ran, dro- drove, thank you, thank you, save your applause, uh, ran, it drove, it ripped donuts in the snow, it was awesome, it took me every waking second that I had over the past week, um, but it's done and it's driving.
2: Nice. So That is yeah. cause for celebration.
0: Fucking sweet.
1: Yeah, congratulations!
3: So, when you say you went, when you went and ripped donuts uh, in the snow, was this like two minutes, or were you fucking around for like an hour having fun?
0: This was a real quick rip. This is the first time the clutch and flywheel have mated under power, so this was a very very quick little little spin. Uh, Didn't want to give it too much right off the bat. Um, Mainly just a Didn't shame. Didn't want to tempt fate, I feel you. Yeah, exactly. I was a little nervous, so I took it on a nice <laughs> leisure stroll out of the neighborhood uh, into a parking lot nearby and uh, tried to rip a donut there, but it uh, it was not a great spot. There's a lot of light poles and uh, curbs, so I just came back into the neighborhood and ripped a couple around the cul-de-sac and then drove it straight into the garage because I knew the cops were going to be there soon. <laughs>
1: Nice, nice. You know, under anarcho-Stalinism, we like the cops. (laughs) Okay, all right. Enough. I'm no longer. I'm no longer an (laughs) (laughs) anarcho-Stalinist.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not. I'm not with this.
1: Well, I mean, not the cops. Cops. We're obviously going to rename them the KGB.
0: I'm going back to Marcus's Bidenism. That makes more sense okay, to me. A horizontal, the, <laughs> the, hold
3: on. The horizontally organized KGB. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the um, the ad hoc KGB.
1: Funny um, you say that ad hoc is actually going to be a group that we discussed today. Oh, cool. Okay. What about you, Brian? Did you accomplish anything in the shop this week?
2: Uh shop what shop uh i um did
1: you accomplish anything <laughs> wherever your car is located Yeah, or moped s- sort
2: of i um yesterday i put the battery back in my mr2 and uh you know pumped up the tires that were a little low um and then pulled the uh fuel injection fuse to crank it over and get oil pressure a couple times and then got it to start blew all the smoke out uh let it run for a while and then it started snowing so uh i will fix the turn signals hopefully tonight or tomorrow um if i have time for that and it doesn't snow again so we'll see about that but um yeah i also got a a notice in the mail saying i need to get it emissions tested so that's putting you know uh, a little bit of um impetus or um you know motivation to get things done so we'll see how how far that carries me but yeah i could drive it today you know if i just stick my arm out the window and do turn signals that way
3: but it's winter i don't want to be cold for that man exactly yeah (laughs) so um, Plus, I don't think anybody actually knows what the hand signals mean anymore. I'm pretty sure no one's yeah. going to get what you're doing.
2: I mean, having driv- <laughs> ridden my bike on public roads, I can vouch for that. People don't know yeah, what that no one...
3: means. People, you know, people don't know what it means when you flash their, your headlights at them either. Like, yeah. people don't get it. It's like, there's a cop there. S- slow down. I'm I'm trying to help you. No one knows. They just Ooh.
2: Or people just driving with their headlights off.
1: Where I'm from, people don't even know what turn signals are. So, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I had a BMW, this wouldn't be a problem, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I only recently learned BMWs have turn signal switches. I've, I've never seen someone use one. So. What you, Connor, have you, what'd you work on?
3: I didn't work on anything. Um, my. Z- makes a segment brief. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> the, the, the 350Z is at the shop. And I'm, I'm trying not to call every week to be like, hey, how's it going? How's it? Going? <laughs> so it's going to be it's going to be there for a good couple months. And I'm trying not to call too often.
1: Um, One time I thought I was being super chill by not harassing my mechanic all the time. And then after three months, I was just like, hey, is there any fucking word on that engine swap? And he's like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to get in touch with me to give me money so I can move on to the next step. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not letting it lapse that long, but, uh, you know. <laughs> well, he was doing me a solid. I, I was being the guy that he worked on cheap when they weren't busy with something else, so I didn't want to harass him too much. I yep. had no idea that they had ceased work for two months because I owed them money, and they were just patiently waiting on me.
3: Yeah, see, if everybody's too patient, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, I'm very, very patient. Yeah,
3: yep. So that makes sense. Um, yeah. So that's you know that's a long term thing. Um, I am looking into finding an audio shop to figure out my sound system because um, that's going to come pretty much right as soon as the engine's rebuilt. Um, I'm going to tackle that one because um, I have been driving around with like dog shit sound and a sub that like keeps going, you know, cutting out and stuff. Like it's just. I got a portable
1: speaker that I've been using in the car for like over a year now. <laughs> yeah. And if you're drift racing, you a hundred percent need to be able to really crank eye of the tiger on repeat
3: for hours. <laughs> you have no idea how fucking true that is when I'm drifting. Uh, I like I really to like,
1: didn't have any idea how true that was. Yeah,
3: no, I blast. Well, not eye of the tiger. I, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't handle that, but, um, like Irish folk music, whatever <laughs> I'm feeling that day, just that's a fun one because people are like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I, I love that shit. We're on the same page, dope. but no, it's specifically dope. for race purposes, it needs to be Eye of the Tiger. So you are wrong. Oh, you're okay. right, but you're still wrong.
3: Uh, uh, okay, sure. <laughs> the is rules the, under
1: anarcho-stalinism are very. <laughs> That's the party line. Okay, got it. <laughs> yes.
3: Um, <laughs> so there's that, and then the Camaro is like just snowed in at my dad's house, and it has been for a while. i wanted to go get it to like fuck around with it um, and try and get this thing ready for emissions, but. The, uh, the clock is starting to run down and I'm starting to be like, okay, how much time do I really have to tackle this? Um, I think I'm just going to end up having to take that to the shop and, you know, make it fucking pass. Because, you know, I was hoping to get a chance to look at it myself, but I've looked at it a couple times and just haven't made any progress on it. Um, I, I know kind of what I'm looking for, but like it's, it is just I'm, I'm looking for this line for emission for like the evap system and i just i don't know where it is it's just unplugged and i can't find a replacement part for it so uh you know might just leave it with a professional so that i don't have to go through the whole um you know out of date emissions test and all that because that's a pain in the ass so this is on the camaro that's where i'm at okay yeah and i i just like
1: the only thing i accomplished this week was converting my cutlass over to a non-running vehicle (laughs) uh i I took it for a a brief drive and somehow discovered that my alternator which has yet to make it through a full tank of gas uh suddenly doesn't work anymore It, it i fucking put the thing on like two weeks ago three and it uh suddenly just isn't charging anything so i had to drive home with my headlights off in the dark for a little bit of the drive just to keep it from draining my fucking battery. Good, good times. But you made uh, it home at uh, least, there, right? Oh, yeah. It, it. My battery was at 10.5 volts when I made it home. <laughs> as, as opposed to the, like, you know, 12.8 it should be.
2: Um. Real quick before we move on, I, I think I told Zach about this, but there's this uh, band from Barcelona from... Catalonia um, called El Pony Pisador uh, that does um, lots of sea shanties and Irish folk music um, that I've been listening to a lot this week. Uh, they're pretty cool, so check them out. What, if you what like. was the name of it again? El Pony Pisador. Um, I think it means like right. a stomping pony, and they have like songs, I will look into that. Yeah, they have like songs in Catalan. They have like Irish folk songs. They have like bluegrass and sea shanties a lot of sea shanties so pretty fun stuff that's
3: dope yeah i i just like you know i like drifting to like ridiculous music that just like doesn't quite fit like it's fun i, I don't know <laughs> why it's just it's a thing that i like doing <laughs> definitely so well, while
1: the only thing i would listen to in my cut list was classic rock or like early 90s hip-hop nice i feel like both
3: of those are kind of fitting though
1: for, yeah for for like if you saw the interior of my cutlass which is like long pile two tone fur and like metal flake vinyl and like like zarape blankets uh it it, it works yeah like yeah. i definitely wanted something that was very like you know early 90s east la vibes so a lot of cypress hill in that car nice yeah, I've actually thought about doing custom seat covers with with actual em- embroidered pot leaves on the headrest. But <laughs> I,
2: that's probable cause, right there.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, our, obviously, if we have listeners, they haven't seen me. But one look at me <laughs> is probable cause. <laughs> I, I look like a middle aged squatter. So yeah,
0: we can all attest to that. He's telling the truth.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, so do we want to move on to to the topic for the week? Yeah, I think you're going to do... Yeah, I think uh, that's a good idea. A
2: recap or something, right?
1: Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to recap it. Fucking H- okay. be patient, Brian. Right, sorry. This is fucking crazy. <laughs>
2: See, I, I was just projecting because I forget things a lot, so I was just reminding... No, you're,
1: you're, you're catching me on like the first well-rested day that we've recorded, li- possibly <laughs> ever, so I'm, I'm feeling it today. I'm well rested. I got a little bit of wild turkey in me. Um, sorry, good to go. Sorry, everybody, but that like an idea. actual little bit, not like the one time we tried to record and I was blackout drunk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, where we left off on Drum Part One, are really like the Revolutionary Union Movement in Detroit Part One, whatever you want to want to call it. I don't know what we'll fucking call this shit. Um, you know, we we went through. The early formations, like sort of the the climate of Detroit being a very uh, tumultuous city, having like some major uprisings, and how that led to the formation of the first Revolutionary Union movement, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, and what their problems were, their objections with the UAW, and the UAW not listening to people's complaints about... Uh, safety concerns, racial issues, uh, so on and so forth. I believe we got into the expansion into the Eldon Avenue plant, the Elrum, which was actually, I, th- I believe that was the single biggest um, revolutionary union movement in a single shop there for a little bit. Uh, and when we left off, this is one thing I did want to touch on. I, I talked about the case of uh, Jordan Sims. And... I don't have everything in front of me to clear it up because man, when you're talking about like specific union elections that happened in the late 1960s, it's, it's hard to find information. And when I do, I forget to write it down. But the, the gist of it is that uh, Jordan Sims was a radical, radical, albeit maybe not like Marxist Leninist sort of radical uh, union leader. He did get elected properly. Uh, I had like kind of confused his specific case with some other ones. But um, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter. It I mean, it, it does in a very specific sense, but the gist of it was e- even union elections had a tendency to be contentious. Like I mentioned uh, the one case where somebody like came over and prevented people, uh, prevented people within uh, drum or within the union itself or something, uh, prevented them from counting, like uh, being in the room while ba- ballots were counted and they had to like raid the The shop and everything that was a case that actually happened it was a different case than the jordan sims guy and and really he he was a a big figure in certain parts of the story but really a small small figure in the grand scheme of things because i can find very little information about him and i believe where i left off was leading into the actual founding of the league of revolutionary black workers Uh, So that's that's where we're going to pick up. Any questions uh, so far? You're getting you guys back up to speed on this.
3: Not for me.
2: No, that all makes sense.
1: All right. So uh, where we leave off is we finally there. There are enough uh, revolutionary union movements that they form the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. That happened in June 1969. And by this point, we had revolutionary union movements across. It wasn't even purely automotive at this point. It it was across a wide array of, of trades. Uh, some of the bigger ones were uh, the Ford Revolutionary Union Movement, Cadillac Revolutionary Union Movement, uh, UPROM, which was the U.S. Post Office Revolutionary Union Movement, and ATRUM, the Healthcare Workers Revolutionary Union Movement. The, so this of other was all
3: centered too. around. So this was so all these Revolutionary Union movements were all um, centered around like Detroit,
1: Right. Yeah, it was a pretty distinctly Detroit phenomenon.
3: So it's uh, so it pretty much started with like, you know, the Dodge Revolutionary Workers whatever, but then people in their own communities talking about it, I assume, led to other industries kind of doing having the si- similar movements.
1: Yeah, one of the cool things I learned in since we last recorded, and this isn't really new information as much as it is like feeling out the overall um sort of attitude and perception in the community of a lot of these things. And while there was clearly contention, even at the time, it looks like at at the very beginning, these movements were viewed very favorably. Like a lot of folks maybe had issues with how radical they were or their tendency towards alienating certain demographics, be it white people or even older black people that they didn't feel like were revolutionary enough. That stood somewhat at odds with the general perception that they were doing good things within the community, so um that's something I'll get into a little bit more but yeah these these rums they were initially viewed as something that was was effective and for the people for the workers very much oriented around the the ordinary worker on the factory floor, which actually somewhat leads to the dissolution of uh, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which uh, we're not going to get into quite yet because I'm just getting into the founding of that league. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a relatively short-lived story. Uh, you know, it, it formed in 69 and it was over by 71. But I can't even say necessarily what it did. But generally, the overall perception of the League was a positive one, I think, at, at least in its inception.
3: So these were... So these revolutionary union movements were happening where there was already union representation. Like, was it like the UAW was already in the plant representing workers and these were cropping up kind of in opposition to them in plants where the UAW was already existing or whatever other union?
1: Yeah, the UAW was was viewed by a lot of folks as kind of complicit with management at this point. Oh, yeah, probably
3: rightly so, I I would think. So, like, were the members of these unions like they were actually members of like the UAW or some other not revolutionary union
1: who were also part of the revolutionary unions. So you got to figure 1967 had some very 2020 vibes. Everybody was was pissed off. There was a lot of social upheaval. And so it, it created fertile grounds for these revolutionary union movements. So when when you had people who were already dealing with massive social unrest on like an absolutely enormous scale, and then they get to work and they're filing safety complaints left and right, and the unions just like, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of it, but nothing ever happens. And yeah, you,
3: it's just an extension of what was already going on in the yeah, social sphere. The, anyway, the big
1: okay. complaints were uh, that that anything. Any, any complaints formally filed in regards to safety were either ignored or kind of put on the back burner, like, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of that later, or, you know, you can do that, but also we're not going to lighten your workload, so you have no time to do that. Uh, you know, a, a little bit of a pocket mm. veto there, sort of. Um, and the other thing was that, you know, these plants were becoming more and more integrated, and in, in some of the later cases, I've, I've heard that some departments within uh, some of the plants were, you know, reaching 70 and 80 90% Black workers. And they still felt very underrepresented, either because there was relatively few uh, Black people who were foremen or uh, union reps or anything like that, or just the fact that a lot of those departments that were predominantly Black or Arabic or in, any other, like, minorities or anything, were the most dangerous or, like like monotonous menial tasks it was they were just the shittiest jobs that you could get and they were never really allowed to move out of them they they were blocked anytime they tried to um, gain skills so that they could move up into the other departments they 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 were just given shit work and everybody knew why yeah so
3: yeah that makes sense and the union's not obviously they don't give a shit you know they're there to represent mostly white workers they understand that like oh we'll do the we'll do the bare minimum for our non-white uh members but really they're just paying dues and kind of propping up the union um but the union's kind of
1: not giving back it sounds like see, see the the sort of vibe that i got was less that like the uaw was for the white workers and didn't give a shit about black work. there was definitely times where that was true there were when you had rank and file union members i'm sure there were people who were very progressive versus straight up like documented kkk members who were in the union ranks but they had the the advantage of being you know a bunch of white folks in power who were able to comfortably say you know we're helping you but you know we're we're gonna we're gonna get there later like we're we're working towards something and that's an easy thing to say when you're not the one who's getting maimed and murdered at work every day. Yeah. You know, when Yeah, you know, that makes sense. So so like even if the union felt like they were trying to to rep- represent everybody, they were just doing an absolute dog shit job of it. So once once the idea of the revolutionary union sort of came into the public consciousness, it it seems like it spread really fast. Maybe a little bit uh, burning too bright kind of scenario. But hmm. there were so many of them at this point that that was what provoked the founding of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. This was an attempt to bring together all of the different different revolutionary union movements under one big umbrella.
2: So were uh, conditions similar in like the, um, the healthcare and postal service jobs? Was it similar? They were in unions that were ignoring their problems?
1: So- if I remember correctly, this was around the time when there was some weird upheaval in the postal union. So I've got no fucking clue what was going on there. And I could not find almost any, like, I found mentions of Uprum, Hrum, and Nurum, which was the, the newspaper workers. But, man, I did not find any details about them at all.
3: Okay. So so we just know that they were, they were there, they were part of it, but, you know. They weren't. I weren't
1: look super hard because I was specifically focused on the automotive aspect of it. Since we are an anarcho-Stalinist podcast about cars, <laughs> I'm not going to let that go guys. I love it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I I will beat a dead horse. I am not afraid, uh, but no, yeah, I, I couldn't find anything at a glance about those. I, I'm sure that I could dig around and find something, but I don't think that they were a huge contingent of, uh, the, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Okay. And if they were, they're not relevant to our car podcast. Fair enough. Makes sense. I, I'm going to blame my lack of research on, on I, that. I love it. That's the way to do it. Yeah. This isn't my fault. It's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the Le- League of Revolutionary Black Workers had... Uh, like an executive committee. It was a seven man board of drum members and then three others who had various roles throughout the union movement. Uh, A lot of them were like the same people who were founding members of drum, like the big uh, names here to remember Ken Cockrell and Chuck Wooten. I can't remember. I don't think I actually got into either of these guys too in depth last week, but Ken Cockrell is for the remainder of his life in Detroit going to be a name worth remembering. Uh, so he was actually a, a lawyer. He he went and I think from Wayne State got his uh, degree in law and immediately sort of became the representative for drum. He was known to be the intellectual amongst the group and sort of the one responsible for keeping everyone out of jail. He was by all accounts that I can find both an excellent lawyer, like genuinely really good at his job, was really trying to do positive things for the community. Like any, any case where uh, the, the case I discussed where the guy came to work and killed the two foreman and job setter. I, I don't remember his name off the top of my head and I don't feel like going through my notes for it, but he at the very least helped on that case or like was known to, to discuss it. I, I couldn't find a lot of specifics, but I think he worked on that case and you know, like, I'll get into it, but this guy b- becomes a, a a long-standing like member of just the the Detroit uh, political scene. He he established league rules for investigating any new members. You know, you didn't just join drum and everybody welcome welcome you with open arms. You know, Cockrell was the one who was said, "No, let's make sure this guy's not a fucking cop." Like, smart, really yeah, smart. I mean, it really, wasn't really proof. As it's never gonna be, but he did at least have the forethought to recognize that they were doing something that higher ups were not gonna be approving of. He even like he opened you, you I, I don't know what repercussions there were, but he uh, was very discouraging of even people using inflammatory rhetoric. Uh, anybody like walking in trying to stir up shit, you were sort of immediately viewed as uh, maybe a bit of an agent provocateur. They didn't put up with that shit. They weren't trying to start shit. They were trying to respond to the shit that the workplace was putting upon them.
2: You know, that reminds me a little bit of, uh, I guess some new evidence came out recently with the, the murder of Fred Hampton, basically the FBI's involvement with that. And one of the FBI's strategies back in the day was to try and get informants to join as early as possible into any, Uh, radical organization um, so that basically they wouldn't be suspect because they got in on the ground floor. And that's what they did with the Chicago black Panthers. And I wonder if maybe they, they did this with a, you know, drum also, but I, I I don't know.
1: Because this is sort of a smaller topic. I was, I didn't find a whole lot about specific instances of FBI or police uh, infiltration I found some, like, sort of passing mentions of it for the police or for, uh, like, management. I do not know to what extent the FBI got involved. Fuck, I wonder if, like, I've never had to file a FOIA request, but I wonder if I dug around if I could find something about that, because I would be extremely surprised if the FBI did not have their fucking, any involvement in this. That would, for, for this era, that does not match their M.O.,
0: at the very least, I would assume that they would have a, an eye on them.
3: Yeah, yeah, they were pretty aggressive back then. But you know, even if it's small, I mean, especially something like this, it sounds like it was spreading. And any, I think, I feel like we we can recognize even today. You look at like Bessemer, Alabama, where there's one single Amazon warehouse that might unionize, and they are pulling out all the fucking stops. Yep. Um, Jeff Bezos is doing fucking everything to stop it. It's not small to them. It's not small to bosses and it's not small to cops. It, it, For even today. You know, today you're on rails
1: own- right here, but since you brought up fucking Bessemer and Bezos, did you hear the same week that Bezos decided to step down as as like the head of Amazon, it came out that Amazon uh like delivery drivers had had like tens of millions of dollars stolen from them by Amazon.
3: Yeah, I think it was like $67 million stolen yeah. from them. <clears throat> I didn't hear that. I there's
1: a lot of speculation that Bezos stepped down specifically to try and maybe take some light off of that.
3: So here's the other thing, by the way. F- so for any listeners who like maybe heard this and like don't fully understand what's going on, um, which I, I can't say I fully, fully understand because I'm about to cite some stuff, but I don't remember the actual fucking title he's going to have. Um, Jeff Bezos is not actually stepping down. What he's doing is he's stepping down from specifically CEO. He is still going to be like the head of the board for in charge of the CEO. So like he's going to have a more powerful position within Amazon now. So he's still going to own a huge majority share. He's still going to be hugely powerful on the board. He's just going to be subject to less media scrutiny scrutiny because he's not the CEO. What, oh, I'm not in control. Boop, boop, I don't know nothing, um, even though he is, in fact, going to have much more power now. So it, it's a perfect storm for him. Less media yeah, he scrutiny. He got tired of being
1: the big, bald face of Amazon, and, and yep. now he just wants all the power with none of the media scrutiny.
3: All the power, all the money, and less work. Yeah, Jeff Bezos is... He is winning right now. Everything is ter- coming up Bezos. Um, and unfortunately, we're going to hear a lot less about him going forward. So that is um, pretty disappointing, actually. Nah, fuck
1: that. I'm going to rail against Bozos until oh, I die.
3: We will. We yeah. will on this podcast. Us anarcho-Stalinists. We will <laughs> steadfastly hold the, the party line uh, against Jeff Bezos. <laughs>
1: What sucks for me personally is if I yell loudly and and angrily enough about Bezos and they decide to do something about it, I have such a long and well-established history of mental illness that (laughs) making it look like suicide is going to be so easy.
2: Yeah. And a couple other little things about Amazon. Um, I don't know if you remember that guy last year who was trying to organize his... um, his warehouse in, I think New Jersey or New York, uh, New York, I think. Yeah. To, to have better safety protocols for COVID. Uh, and Jeff Bezos personally went into a meeting and said like, how can we discredit this guy and get rid of him? Uh, and they did, they, they trumped up some charges and fired the guy. Um, and then with that plant in or warehouse or whatever in Alabama, they, Talked to like the um, the mayor or the city council or someone, and got them to change the timing of the traffic lights at the um, you know entry and exit of that um, warehouse yep, yep. to make it so that um, it was harder for people to pass out leaflets for uh, unitization uh, calls. Yeah,
1: I, I know Kim Kelly was reporting on that, and when she, when I heard her talking about it, it was. She was saying it was speculative, but it has since been confirmed. Yeah, that it was were.
3: confirmed like last week. They were talking about it on uh, Means Morning News.
1: Yeah, they, they were saying. Yeah, I think uh, Kim Kelly was actually on Means Morning <laughs> yep. News at some she point was. discussing it. I don't know if you're all familiar with her. She's she's doing really great work on, on a lot of labor issues. And also, I just knew her back when I lived in Philly and she she used to like party at my house with a bunch of folks. So that's cool. Small world. Oh, Awesome.
3: Yeah. Well, personal yeah. connection there.
1: I didn't know her super well, but uh, she was always super rad, super big metalhead. That's how she got into journalism—was reporting on like metal bands and shit. (laughs) Super, super nice, super nice person.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And for anyone who's not familiar with what I mentioned before about like uh, Amazon stealing like sixty something million dollars from its delivery drivers, was they had a certain type of delivery driver. It was they were using personal vehicles and they were getting paid something like eighteen dollars an hour plus tips. But what Amazon did was pocket the tips. Or under under report the tips. So the 67 million was them skimming off of the top from tips and then folding that back into the hourly. So it looked like people weren't tipping as well, but they were making their hourly wage plus tips. The tips amount was just lower than it was supposed to be by like a fairly significant amount. Yep. Because poor old Amazon just couldn't afford to pay those workers that much money. Yeah, exactly. Well,
3: I mean, so, I mean, kind of more back on topic, um, all that to say, they give a shit. They absolutely give a shit. They have always given a shit. Um, the, the richest, most powerful man in the world is going after like, us, you know, individual hourly fucking workers when they speak too loud. So to me, the thought that, you know, somebody wasn't having a major eye on all these revolutionary union movements, especially given, you know, this was at the time during, I mean, some kind of a red scare. I mean, people were ter- they thought, oh, the communists were here and we're going to become the Soviet Union. So, revolutionary union movement is a terrifying thing for anyone who's against. Yeah, anyone who was concerned
1: hear. that within this organization there was uh, communists, they, they were correct. These guys were straight up Marxist Leninists. Like, yeah. My, my general vibe is that may- maybe they weren't the most like educated on the matter. Because a lot of the stuff doesn't seem to quite track with with strict Marxist Leninist immortal science, but uh, you know they 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 were doing their thing based on those principles. It was it was fucking solid. You know, Um, I
3: don't want to I don't want to like derail the conversation, but a part of me is wondering maybe if you happen to know kind of the difference between what might constitute a Marxist Leninist. Union approach versus like a syndicalist type of approach, because my understanding was always that the uh, anarcho syndicalists was always like a strategy of using revolutionary unions to build power from the bottom up. Dude, it's funny
1: you bring that up without having talked to me about it before, because my big criticism of like all of their literature, they were outwardly Marxist Leninist, but everything that they were doing really did strike me as anarcho syndicalist. Yeah. Th- okay. So that's so I'm not the only one. Yeah. That, it no. Just- no. It, it definitely has those vibes. I think that like my my overall impression was that some of the higher ups maybe had some distinct tendencies that they were into, but a lot of this and and I don't know this officially, but it, it kind of seemed like if you had even remotely radical tendencies you just sort of got folded into to the ranks because
3: which makes sense. I mean, oh, this is kind of a natural approach to approaching the issues in the workplace directly. Like, yeah, Oh, you're, you call yourself a Marxist Leninist, but in this case, the strategy called for is a syndicate strategy. Like you can believe in a party, you can believe in all kinds of things, but in terms of addressing these specific issues, I mean, this seems like just, this is the natural approach. So it's not necessarily like, Oh, we're ideologically pure. It's just, this is, these are the problems. Here's the solution. Here's what we're going to go with. It just, it feels natural to me.
1: Yeah. Which I I think is really cool. I think that that is a pretty solid assessment. Yeah. So like getting back to the league pretty much immediately, like within, after the formation of the league of revolutionary black workers there, I don't want to say it was a split, but there were two predominant attitudes of implant organizing a la what drum and L and all of the other rumps had already been doing where they stuck to a pretty like on the ground, just worrying about the workers in the plants. It, it never had, these people didn't have desires to, to grow into this big grassroots organization. They really just wanted to be the faction within the union who was, was fighting for what they believed in. And then there were other people who had bigger ideas. They wanted to expand, the rums to be more community based organization. And that gets more into what you were talking about. Like when you're organizing the community and, and you know, they did have beliefs about like having a black revolutionary Vanguard party. So they weren't strictly syndicalists as I kind of made it sound. They did have distinct like Leninist tendencies, but my, my impression of the overall vibe was it, it was very syndicalist, just not in name.
3: Yeah, I feel like there's just, there's a lot of blurry lines there, to to be honest. Like, in, in terms of the broader left, I think the lines are a lot blurrier than a lot of people think. You know, there's strategies, there's ideologies, and there's a lot of crossover between them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the, these, these, the two different styles of organizing that different people were trying to approach, that that's what causes early conflict within the ranks of the league because you had some people who really just wanted this to be a a strictly grassroots implant organization. And there were some people who were already thinking about expanding this to like a national level. Yeah. So yeah. uh, By like within like a year of the foundation of the league, you can kind of already start to see the, the decline. First of all, they had to start raising money. Like I'm not actually a hundred percent sure about how the, the, local rums were doing like any fundraising to support the stuff they had going on because that that was you know as as is with sort of any leftist organization you you tend to be looking out for the poor and downtrodden which are not your best financial base so they from the very from very early on were having difficulty raising money for strike funds and stuff like that and so that was sort of seen as something that the league needed to try and combat so, uh, there was a conference in Detroit called the Black Economic Development Conference. And before I get into that too much, we're going to introduce a character named James Foreman. He was a, a character that I really can't quite fucking figure out in this story. On the whole, a positive for sure. Uh, he was a big organizer with SNCC early on. Um, you all familiar with SNCC, right? The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee.
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I come across it a couple times. Um, I don't know a full like detailed history um, of the organization, but I know that some pretty pretty well known folks came out of uh, organizing with them, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, so this dude James Foreman, he was. I don't think he was one of the form uh, foundational members of SNCC, but he was a very early member. He had. A brief stint as the Black Panther Party uh, minister of foreign affairs. He was that, I think, for like six months. He was brought into uh, the Revolutionary Union Movement and the League because he had—he was a smart dude, educated, a lot of organizing experience. Uh, Just from working with SNCC, he had ties across the entire fucking country to different organizations. Uh, He did organizing sort of parallel to MLK in Alabama. Like he had, I read about him doing work in Selma and other areas in Alabama, but that also kind of got him a little bit of flack because he didn't always really agree with MLK's tactics. He opposed top-down leadership. He wanted it to be more community organized, grassroots sort of. He also was pretty, like not not that it like comes to a head with him but he was comfortable with violent protest. He un- he understood the role that violence played in a movement and was critical of MLK's condemnation of violence. This dude is kind of a big part of the end of the league. If it, he would it probably would have ended in his absence, but he he definitely didn't slow the process down any. And like as as a, a thing that I'm going to get into later about how a lot of these organizers kind of became a little bougie. This dude's son is now a fucking professor of law at Yale. Hmm. So, wow. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't, yeah. Don't know.
3: Maybe that's good, but I have a feeling that it's
1: probably not, you know, it probably is both. I, I like actually, I'm going to get into that in a little bit. Uh, Cause I, I have a little bit to say about how some of that goes. Well, anyway, yeah. I, I bring this dude specifically – I bring him up specifically because he uh, had something that he called the Black Manifesto. So at the Black Economic Development Conference, he got up and read the Black Manifesto, which was almost hilarious. It was. It was – they're one of their two attempts at like large scale fundraising, except that his was entirely just shaming black, uh, shaming white people into paying reparations. It was a 100% like, hey, churches and synagogues, y'all have been complicit in this shit for a whole bunch of years. So we demand $500 million. <laughs> and this is not $500 million adjusted. Like this was 1970 $500 million. <laughs>
2: That's a that's a bold ask,
3: I guess. I mean, he, he he wasn't exactly wrong, but that probably didn't have a very good, you know, chances
1: of success, unfortunately. I saw mixed stuff about the number that they got. They, they got, I think, less than or around $100,000 from various churches, well short of their $500 million goal. But like worth noting is that. It was a big ask and like their tactics at this point were a little dodgy. Like I vaguely recalled something about maybe them sending some strong men to, to coerce uh, religious leaders out of money. Oh, I like um, that. Yeah, I don't think that they ever actually got violent. I think that they did rely a little bit on some intimidation. But here's some of the stuff that they wanted the money for because it wasn't just a vague demand of like give us money because you, you owe us or we deserve it or something. I believe 200 million of it was earmarked for a land bank. So they wanted to like actually have a a huge, like invest huge amounts of money into land that they could distribute amongst people who needed it amongst union members or whoever they had plans for a job skills training program, you know, again, for black people publishing ventures in dude, it was like something like half a dozen different cities And then an enormous amount for a black labor strike fund so that the Revolutionary Union movements could go about their business and strike when need be without having like the economic pressure applied that a strike is always going to do. A lot of people did not care for this approach. They thought that it was sort of relying too much on handouts, which, you know, on the one sense it is, but on the other sense, it's kind of fucking money owed like when you yeah
3: i mean really especially if they did the math and said here's how much we need for this here's how much we need for that
1: and they 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 did do the math it was pennies to the person yeah
3: i mean that's that's pretty legit Uh, i i i feel like it is money owed and it's like well you know they're not wrong they really weren't and they were gonna do something with it. they had a plan i'm not uh, yeah i'm
1: not against that at at all i mean it it was you know it, it was in 69 or 70 like it was still like back then they were still seeing it as what i have it, it's, it's the best model that i've i've ever seen of how to go about reparations like you can't maybe you can't afford to just give every individual these large lump sums but they wanted to go in and build something it, build the community like yeah build like I don't know. uh i i'm i'm sort of uh get, getting uh, caught up with myself, but yeah, like personally, were... no, I, I agree. I think it's a, I think it's a good model because they had a, it was a great model, and and really like, I I won't condemn anything about the model that they're using. Like that tactic was a little bit iffy because it did rely so much on getting money from, you, you know, uh, uh, white already
3: guilt. yeah already um a pretty not sympathetic group of people.
1: You know well, what I mean? It's like people called them out openly, but you know, a lot of people did give them money. Yeah. But there was another thing that they were referring to as the international black appeal. And that was a more of a self-reliance view. It was the alternative to the black manifesto. And that was, I think it was every worker who was a member of the organization was, and at this point, they're trying to expand the, the organization to millions. Like They're wanting to get every black worker in America on board with this. And if they can do that, actually, I don't, I say in America, it was an international approach. They, they just wanted black workers in general to come together. And it was something like if every worker gives a dollar, then their income was going to be, you know, millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And that was going to be their other resource pool. And it was effectively union dues. It was you, you pay $1 into the rum fund and we're going to do all this fucking wild shit for you. And it was that also
3: seems like a very good approach.
1: Yeah, I mean, I cannot imagine a better approach. The only problem is that like, even though these people had union jobs, there's constant discussion about the economic struggles that they were having. There was one specific instance where, you know, Dodge was was bragging about how everybody in their plant by the end of the year was going to be making $4 an hour, which, you know, at the time was a, a good wage except that by all accounts not a single person in the shop at any point was at $4 an hour. I, I think the closest they came was like 390 something. And mm. like Dodge was out there saying this was going to be the average wage and then a lot of people were like, "I don't know, dude, I'm making 250, so fuck you." It was it was a classic rich person move. It, if you claim that you're going to do something, a lot of people just aren't going to report the fact that you didn't. So you get a lot of positive press with none of the backlash.
3: Kind of like what Elon Musk does. Yep, I see it every day, and I hate it,
1: dude. That was Trump's whole fucking mo, his whole career. Like, yeah, you can like, dude. My fucking coworkers love to be like, oh, did you hear Trump's gonna give his yeah. uh, salary from being president for the year to this charity? And it's like, yeah, find me the document when he actually does that. Because yeah. he don't, you <laughs> don't do that.
2: Well, I mean, uh, Biden's been walking back his campaign promises too you know like
1: and that's why i abandoned marx A- angrily <laughs> and then he gets
3: angry he's like how dare you bring that up yeah. i didn't how dare you remind me how i said two thousand dollar checks
1: How you fucking asshole what are you, you up from it, it was fourteen hundred dollars the whole time at no point did i ever say i was giving you more than twelve hundred dollars <laughs> I, mean, I don't know why you you even deserve more than the $800 that we're giving you. Yeah, (laughs) But if you can't settle for this $600, then you don't even deserve this $400. (laughs) I never even said I was giving you anything.
3: Yep, that's it.
1: To a T. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: Joe, if you're listening, you owe me $2,000. Pay up.
1: (laughs) Joe, if you're listening, you got to reread Capital, bud, because you missed some of the high points. (laughs) (laughs) You're making my faith in... Uh, Marxist Bidenism. Right. Really wait for here. Yeah, I mean it's, you know, it's a deeply flawed. Uh, I'm I, I, I'm 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 more of a Biden Trotskyist than anything
2: else. Yeah, it's he's not walking back his promises. It's a continual revolution. He's just changing things as yeah, it goes exactly. along. <laughs>
1: You know, there's truth in that. Biden's promises are continually revolting. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, sorry to derail the conversation.
1: You know, anytime I can, I can condemn Marxist Bidenism and praise anarcho stalinism I will, I will hop on that. <laughs> Uh, how many more times do I have to bring it up before it's funny again? Because I'm pretty sure I've killed this joke, but I think I can bring it back.
2: No, I mean, if you can, like, cobble together some, some uh, half-formed ideology that, that you know, fits that definition after the fact, I mean, it'll continue to be a, a fun joke, I guess.
1: Well, it's just going to be like every contemporary right-wing version of leftism where it just it means whatever I say it means at the time. It's it's my easy out yeah. from now on.
2: Yeah, like postmodern neo-Marxism or whatever.
1: Uh, I, I'm not familiar with the concept, and I don't want to be.
2: That's uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, bugbear.
1: Wait, wait, what? What is it now? Oh, you mean cultural Marxism? Yeah, that's the one
3: they usually go to—is cultural Marxism. Oh, yeah,
2: that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah postmodern it. cultural Marxism, whatever he calls it, I forget. Yeah,
3: just it's yeah, it's <laughs> word salad. And people are like, "Oh, did you see how smart they are?" And you're like, "Can you define what any of this means?" And they're like, "Whoa!" And you're like, "Yeah, you can't." Yeah, postmodern
1: neo-Marxism. It's the combination of Foucault, Marx, and Neo from the Matrix. (laughs) I mean, that almost makes sense. What part of this isn't clicking for you? I don't have all day to explain this.
2: Uh, I'm sorry. I'll study up on my own time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm actually really excited about the the revisions to to postmodern neo Marxism now that they're making another Matrix movie.
3: Wait, are they making another Matrix movie? Probably. <laughs> oh, I I heard
2: about that. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't understand why they're doing that other than just money. But
1: well, you just explained the film industry, okay. so I, don't, I, don't, I can't help you much. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, I might be excited. I'll I'll go see it. It, it might be bad, but actually, while we're talking about film. Zach, if you had something else to say, say your piece. But we're actually about to get to the media wing of the league.
0: I just wanted to make sure everyone aware, was aware that the two people that wrote The Matrix are uh, trans anarchists. I did hear that. I hope you all know that. Are they anarchists? Just...
2: They seem pretty cool. I just don't understand why they're making another Matrix movie.
1: I don't either. I don't think they're involved. What could be more anarchist than I don't just
0: I don't think the original writers are involved. What vein of I, anarchists? Are they anarchist I don't know what their specific uh, belief is. But.
2: They should really make a sequel to Speed Racer. I know that they uh But they worth, got, worth the shout out, for sure. Yeah, they got real mad at Trump for using the, the red pill meme, you know, and they're like, basically fuck you, that's a metaphor for like trans issues, basically. Because I guess hormone pills are red or something. I don't know.
3: Huh. Yeah.
1: Okay. I don't.
3: Yeah. You know, I heard that, which coming from the actual like writers makes sense. When I think about it, I'm like, I mean, that's a very loose connection. You're like, oh, well, the old HRT pills were red. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not all that pill was. Like, He <laughs> saw a totally different fucking world after that. Yeah. Which I guess if I, I, you know, I don't know. I thought there was a lot more said about society than just someone's outlook changing um as as a trans person but i could be wrong and maybe it was kind of both meanings i don't know but cool Uh, either way i'm thoroughly
1: red-pilled but my red pill has a yellow hammer and sickle on it so i'm okay (laughs) (laughs) let's take it back yeah sorry (laughs) good uh no i'm gonna take back the red pill but that's a stupid idea and i don't want to do that no but since we are talking about movies we get to talk about finally got the news uh, which hmm. I meant to tell you guys to to watch, but I don't remember if I did. Uh, no. Okay. Well, it's it can be hard to find because it keeps getting removed from YouTube, it seems. But the uh, in I think '69 or '70, the league was approached by a group from New York called Newsreel, and they uh, they were like revolutionary filmmaker types. I don't know a whole lot about them because they kind of seemed like dumb white idiots who were like, you know, that, that I'm oversimplifying. Like, I'm sure that they had like some really good intentions in the way that many of us did when we didn't know anything and made stupid decisions. But yeah, so they approached uh, the league about doing a documentary on them. And the league was not really into it because they were at this point, I'm unclear on how secretive they were to begin with because they were openly pamphleting outside of shops and things like that I think that they ha- had maybe fought with uh, some infiltration issues they were getting to be a little bit more secretive at this point or maybe maybe the rums were more open but the actual league itself was being secretive I'm really not sure but uh, John Watson one of the founding members of drum and one of the founders of the League of Revolutionary black workers was into the idea so he convinced the other members of the executive board, that it was a good idea under the condition that they had a, a heavy hand in the filming and production and writing. Basically they were allowing newsreel to come in and do the documentary, but only under the strict guidance of the league, which is honestly like it. I think that was the best way they could have done it. They, they did make a lot of good decisions because they learned a lot of skills in terms of editing and production and so on and so forth, and were able to be helpful and tell the story that they wanted told instead of a bunch of like film school revolutionaries who, you know, had a lot of their own issues. And a lot of their own issues were like they, Drum and the League were sort of at odds with a lot of other revolutionaries in that era because they did want to. St- a lot of them did want to stick with implant organizing and newsreel was more in the black Panther and weather underground school of thought in that they were all about taking action and were proponents of violence. And you know, that didn't always jive with, with the league of revolutionary black workers. Ken Cockrell himself was openly condemning of that sort of rhetoric because it caused problems. Also, fun little fact is, you know, you can criticize, you know, them being like college kids or whatever at this point, because back back in this era, there was a lot of contention between actual working people and underprivileged people and college students who were hopping onto revolutionary politics, but really didn't have a lot of firsthand experience and knowledge about what these people were going through. Uh, so one of the newsreel guys was dedicated enough to this project that he went to jail for 10 years because he tried to fund it by smuggling hash. <laughs> so, all right. <laughs> wow. Credit to That fucking guy.
2: You know, there's, that's the but, Stalinist uh, part of the anarcho Stalinist, uh, ideology, right? I mean, cause he funded the bolsheviks um, by robbing banks.
1: Smuggling hash is more the anarcho part. Uh, going yeah. to jail for it is the Stalinist part.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Uh, so because newsreel was pretty into the black panther party i don't know a whole lot about other stuff they did but they had done documentary work for the black panther party and weather underground as well they were from new york so I, i don't know how tight they were with the weathermen but you know that that was sort of the line that they they were pushing and at some point there was a conference in detroit that newsreel went Or maybe they hosted called the Anti Repression Conference. I think they actually hosted it, and they invited Ken Cockrell along with two Black Panther Party members. And so we're going to get into the split between the league and the Black Panther Party. They were never really on the same page. John Watson, who was, you know, I've mentioned over and over again as as a founding member of Drum in the League, was early on a Black Panther Party member, and he always tried to keep the two somewhat in line and it never seems like I, I never found anything to imply that they were like cutthroat at war with each other or anything but they did not have the same approach or the same beliefs and I don't I don't really get it because they actually would have worked really well together in tandem but y'all know how splits among leftists can be
3: yeah, it's very frustrating. I, to me, I'm like, uh, I feel like there's room for pretty much every one of these approaches. Everyone's got a point. That's why we can't agree because everybody's kind of fucking right. Let's do all of them. Like, let's, you, oh, you guys were organizing the plants directly and in the community, and we'll kind of focus on the national stuff. You, you would think that maybe they could kind of do their own thing, but, you
1: know, of course. Dude, and you can't you're let right. Anybody. Because it yeah. seems like the big difference between the league and the Black Panther Party was what the biggest issue at hand was. So, yeah. And why not? You attack
3: the the issue that you think is the most important. We'll do the one that we think is most important. And ta-da, both problems get
1: attacked. Seems, yeah, I, I, I would love to find out more about this. And I feel like given how specific this information is, it might involve tracking down people who were like firsthand involved in the conflict. I don't fucking know. But yeah, the gist I mean, of it is, oh, what's up?
3: I was just going to say, you know, again, for us it's, you know, hindsight is 2020,
1: but we still struggle yeah, with I, these same issues today. Um I can't shit on them too much, man. These these people were doing yeah. Yeah. real like they were trying to organize conferences, there were countless organizations formed, and a lot of them seemed to be somewhat larger organizations. Like maybe they weren't hundreds of members, but they weren't, you know, one or two people either. And I guess the formal split where they were officially no longer associated with each other in any shape, form or fashion was because at the anti-repression conference, Ken Cockrell made a comment that base that criticized the black Panther party approach to everything and said that because they had played it safe and like not advocated violence and everything so much they had, he, and again, Ken Cockrell was the lawyer, the intellectual and just really like good at uh, legal shit. He at no point did any drum or any revolutionary union movement member ever go to jail or get killed. Wow. And that was his, that's, that was Cockrell's specific criticism of the black Panther party. You know, they were having members being killed and jailed on a regular basis. And the league was not having that problem.
3: That's, I mean, that is a reasonable criticism. That's, that's
1: kind of looking at the facts and going, uh, <laughs>
3: The record well, seems pretty
1: clear, which it's a valid I criticism. Know, but I mean, you could also frame playing it safe as a valid criticism of the league. Oh,
3: absolutely. Like like I said before, I think everybody kind of has a point. Um, and that's why it's like, well, we can't agree because there isn't really a right answer here. So, yeah, valid criticism on both sides
1: there. I think you just defined uh, uh, Marxist Bidenism for me, which is which is when you, you can see both sides and <laughs> <laughs> we should unify. Um but no like in r- roughly speaking the league played it safer. They were a bit less confrontational and in general they struck that they stuck specifically to workplace organizing. And because of that they actually as far as i could find at no point did they ever have anyone killed or get sent to jail. Crocker defended the shit out of everybody and did a good job doing it and so a lot of people got fired but they really never had a lot of legal issues they had some and cockerel did have to defend some people but they were relatively minor compared to the black panther party
3: now before we get too far um i was just going to ask more about you know did, did they have much success to speak of like did they actually get gains over these other unions where like they started to actually change hey workers got Raise after raise after raise, or the safety issues were addressed promptly because of the threat of what the revolutionary unions were doing. Um, did they have much success to speak of, or were they? Was it like they were working really hard, but the results were tenuous at best?
1: So some know. of their bigger organizing successes, unfortunately, were early on. Y- you probably forgot but I, I went into it a little bit in the previous episode they had some uh wildcat strikes that were thousands of people they shut some plants down yeah. for a few days uh and as far as i could tell that did result in at the very least some superficial uh safety improvements um they combated okay, i mean that's, some work speed ups yeah that's something that's that's what i want to know i'm sorry i just couldn't yeah. remember well yeah the the book where I got a lot of my information from, Detroit, I do mind dying, was written in like seventy-five. So there's a lot of post mortem work about this movement that could be done that isn't necessarily in this book. There there are some updates, but they're not they're more about what happened later on and less about, you know, what information has come out since that shows us one thing or the other. That they they, hmm. they formed and early on had some success. But it kind of went downhill, and I'm sure that there was some infiltration issues, but a lot of it, and this was another thing I was going to address, is the league was very confrontational and didn't, they refused to work with white people. In a way where even a lot of the Black Panthers seemed more sympathetic to working with white people than uh, the Rums did. Hmm.
3: Which, I mean, you know, that's something that kind of comes up. And like we understand kind of today where it's like, okay, yeah, that kind of didn't have a very good model for success. However, you know, I kind of want to point out that like I feel like it's easy to kind of dismiss that um, looking back today. But really at the time, I mean, I kind of can't help but understand it because the truth was you had actual like clan members in other unions and stuff. It's like, well, working with white people like the interests at that time were
1: pretty divergent. So, like, I mean, we we're going to get into a minute, the uh, Motor City Labor League and some other parallel organizations. There was a there was a sense of of uh, black. There there was a lot of black nationalism within the ranks of drum. Like there were a lot of uh, Marxists who were more about the labor struggle. But there were a lot of more nationalists oriented folks who it was not as much of a class issue as it was a race issue. So the yeah. general feel was it was kind of like the the Rainbow Coalition. They, they weren't condemning of white people. They were just saying, y'all do your thing. We'll do our thing. Like they wouldn't work a, with with them, but they encouraged them to organize amongst themselves.
3: Yeah, which I mean, to me, I just I look back and I, I understand why black nationalism is kind of stuff, which appears ugly when you look at it. But at the same time, it's like I get why that happened. And really, I don't think that we ever could have avoided that tendency like given the history and where things were at at the time and how things were organized it, it's like it's easy to see now where it's like oh yeah yeah, that was that was of course a problem but you know I mean, the there's time, a lot of I, I flavors of like the...
1: black nationalism and some of them yes don't well, seem that bad and some of them are straight up abhorrent well, you, well sure
3: but then again when you look back you're like well even if even the ones that were pretty not great you, you're kind of like well given the history, given what was going on, I kind of get it. Like I get why that cropped up and it's really easy to just like, Oh, you know, of course it was an issue, blah, blah, blah. They should have known better. But you know, at the time, um, things were pretty fucking bad. Um, and, and that history I think is just something that we get, like, I don't think it could have developed any other way. Like there, there was, that was always going to be part of it because of the history that preceded it. I just, I don't think that there was ever like, we had people who were trying other approaches, of course, and they were sometimes successful, sometimes not, but like, I feel like we should understand that like some of this stuff that like, yeah, it's, it's not pretty, but it existed for a reason. And it's hard to say like, oh, it was totally wrong, whatever. It's like, well, not from a person's perspective who kind of was part of that I guess it, like it made a lot of sense like I I can see why that was an issue in the rings their approach to black
1: nationalism and, and the approach of that era you know, There, there's there's a lot of discussion I, I found in some documents from the time and some stuff that was written later on in the 70s that were talking about what nationalism robbed the movement of but what it also contributed it wasn't strictly yeah. positive or negative it was that, well that's and that's kind of what i'm of the movement. that's what i'm getting at
3: is you know like we move past it today because we go oh yeah of course that like was a problem and blah 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 but like i feel like we have to take a step back and just go there was a reason it was a problem and it's not like ex- and it's not like you can just write off like oh you know those people were wrong it's like well i mean from their perspective I mean, can you really blame them that much? So I just wanted to point that out is like there was a reason that that was a difficult issue um, within these organizations. Like it, it existed for a reason and it's hard to get rid of for a reason
1: was all I, I was trying to get at. Oh, and, and another one of the things I found, which will answer your question a little bit more, some of the stuff that I found that uh, said that they think that the decline of the Revolutionary Union movement had a lot to do with its efficacy. They didn't have a lot of overt gains. There wasn't a lot like... And, you know, it. it, honestly, it has a lot to do with how the state will never attribute any progress made to a violent organization. You know, like, you don't want to say that something was effective. So the bosses didn't seem like they were giving a lot to the Revolutionary Union movements but it did seem like they had an impact because a lot of people Hmm. said that declining membership in the later years had a lot to do with the fact that there was just less stuff that people were pissed off about. So, you know, the interesting, yeah.
3: So they were kind of impacting the other, the other unions. Like, you know, it made sense to give to the more, to the less radical um, demands because you'd rather deal with them
1: than the, the, the rum movements. Well, that's the thing though. They weren't making, they were radicals in speech and politics, but their demands were the same things that the UAW would have been arguing for 30 years earlier before they yeah became very much, you know, on the same page as management. They were by and large, everything I have found said that what they wanted were safer work conditions. I didn't find a lot of demands for more money. Except in the form of, we want to make the same amount that we're making now, working fewer hours. Hmm. Because at the time, there was a lot of compulsory overtime, a lot of seven day weeks. And when you implement a, 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 a speed up on the production line and everybody's working seven days a week at 20% faster rate, that's a safety hazard. You have everybody exhausted all the fucking time and they make mistakes and they get hurt and they lose. Fingers and hands and arms and they fucking die, and when you compound that with equipment that was undermaintained or you know being pushed past its limits, these were the things that they were fighting for. Like they might have been a revolutionary union movement, but they were fighting for very reasonable fucking demands. Yeah, the most revolutionary quote unquote thing that I found that they ever demanded was uh, forty hours pay for thirty hours work, which. Is an obvious echo of the classic 40 hours pay for, for 60 hours work or whatever. Like, they wanted their fair share of the pie. You know, they did, they did act like openly say they didn't care if the company made a fucking dime because they were being, they were the ones doing the work and they wanted the pay. But in terms of actual demands, no, they were pretty fucking reasonable. We don't wanna die on the job, we wanna make enough money to support us and our families. Yeah, very reasonable. It doesn't yeah. I, I'm with you there. I got a little ahead of myself though. Really, I was just comparing like the the sort of tonal differences between the league and the Black Panther party, and what it really boiled down to was the league was wanted to remain smaller scale. Even if they became a more national organization, they largely wanted to stay in the workplace. And the Black Panther party Sure they weren't even just a national organization. They wanted to be international. They allied themselves with every root revolutionary movement across the world. And they were more into social organizing and they were bigger advocates of violence than the league ever was. Uh, and yeah. I saw this, uh, there was one article I found that summed it up as the black Panther party saw the primary enemy as the cops and the league saw the primary enemy as the boss. And that's, was sure. the best that I can see it put. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying, Connor, like there's no fucking reason I can't hate both of those people. I hate my boss and yeah. I hate pigs. So, you know, let's, yeah, maybe you don't want to split I mean, your resources fighting them, but they're both the enemy.
3: Yeah, that's I exactly. And to be honest, we're saying that like, oh, well, there was this split, but it, it kind of seems like there just really didn't have to be because it's like, well,
1: you didn't really have to be affiliated with each other anyway. I mean, and again, with I don't really know how contentious of a split it was. I kind of think Ken Cockerell criticized the Black Panther Party, and the Black Panther Party was kind of already iffy on the league, so they were just kind of like, "All right, we're we're not working together. We're, we're you and I, we're not the same." Yeah, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I I, I never saw anything to sit f- to indicate that there was genuine animosity between the organizations. Later on, there was still even some Black Panther Party, like former Black Panther Party members, that did some uh, organizing after the end of the league, along with league members. Yeah, but oh, that this was all like a huge aside because uh, that the the newsreel place that that were making the documentary on Drum had that conference, and that was why I brought up the whole fucking split. Yeah, so they start filming a documentary about the league, and. There's a lot of league involvement. They have people learning to operate cameras and all of the equipment and do editing and film development, so on and so forth. And it honestly it was it was good. Like these folks did a lot of solid fucking work. Uh, they, That's, yeah, you know, they, they newsreel wanted to make a movie and uh, John Watson found an excuse to have his people learn a lot from it. But I forget what happened. The newsreel fucking fell apart. They uh, there was a lot of mm. problems with them supporting. You know the, the most adversarial stuff I saw between the league and the Black Panther Party was involved newsreel, and and purely just mm. because of newsreel, a lot of the members showed up in Detroit. They were from New York, and they started like supporting the Detroit Black Panther Party and advocating for violence and the league was like, slow your fucking roll. Like we're not on board with that. They hit some financial trouble and newsreel was about to uh, hand over their equipment to this other organization, I think in Ann Arbor and John Watson said, nah, fuck that. This equipment's ours now. He, he, he seemed, he seized the means of film production. Um, (laughs) So they just took all the cameras and stuff. Yeah. Like he just, he just took all their equipment away from them. Like they were done. But they were going to like try and pay off some debts by handing over the equipment. And at that point, the league was like, actually, you owe us, too. So we're just taking your equipment. <laughs> and John Watson founded Blackstar Productions using all of that equipment. And like it never became a huge thing. Like it never seemed well organized. But they they did some stuff, you know, under Blackstar, they finished the production of their film finally got the news. That's that's what it's called. Sometimes you seem to be able to find it on YouTube. Sometimes you can't. Last I looked, there was a German subtitled version that was it was fine. It was weird because you have to have the German subtitles, but it's it's good. It gets the point across. Hmm. I recommend it. If you if you are into, you know, seeing like, if, if you're the kind of person that likes looking up Fred Hampton clips and, and seeing folks just espousing revolutionary rhetoric, that's a lot of what it is. And it's fun. That does sound really cool. Yeah, I mean it's it's, you know, not an Oscar Oscar winning movie or anything, but it's definitely fucking entertaining and worth the watch. So yeah, John Watson founded Black Star and he kinda like got really into film production. He he did bring along some of the newsreel people. I guess they weren't all idiots or whatever. I, I don't know. They didn't really talk a lot about him. But uh Watson used this as an excuse to go travel Europe to sell copies, sell distribution rights or whatever. I don't don't know how the film world works. He didn't do great. The coolest thing that I found was that they did manage to sell a copy of Finally Got the News to the Italian Communist Party. (laughs) Nice. You know, the fucking Italians love their leftism. It's also their fascism. I don't know. It's a conflicted country. They love they love spaghetti. I feel like
3: you know what? I, that seems to be the case everywhere. It's always conflicted. Whenever you start to see like, oh, socialism getting popular, so is fascism. Almost anywhere in the world you look, at least from what I'm seeing, the two go hand in hand. Unfortunate, like things polarize more and more on each side, and that's how you get either one. And it's just a constant battle between the two like in Central and South America, there it feels like it's constantly switching between socialist and fascist governments.
1: And that's is... why I'm hoping that America can finally form some socialism to combat our fascism.
3: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right now, the other side's winning, unfortunately. And
2: I mean, a lot of the stuff in Italy was like the connection of like the CIA, the mafia, the Catholic Church at some point. You know, they were all working together to make fascism at at some point or another, whether they knew it or not. Yeah. So fun stuff. Uh, look up operation Gladio. If you're curious. Oh, there's
1: no, no, not Gladio. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> oh, that's just so much.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you really want to like feel like conspiracy theories are real, uh, just start reading about that and, <laughs> and and then you'll be ranting unhinged uh rants at your co-workers about <laughs>
1: <laughs> gfk Dude, if you really no want to feel like operation glad or if you really want to feel like conspiracy theories are real you don't need gladio you can literally look, look at like almost anything the u.s has done for 100 years oh yeah no yeah pretty much operation gladio operation paperclip operation condor fucking COINTELPRO. i guess that was the fbi yeah but yeah it's we're in not there. in short supply of conspiracy theories that were well documented to be true. Yep. All right, so I'm I'm uh, that's that's pretty much all I had to say about uh, Black Star. That was that was uh John Watson's uh baby and we're going to touch base on how, why it became a problem in a second, but I wanted to talk about uh Mike Camlin's. Uh, he's one of the other founding members of Drum and the League. I actually thought his contribution was a little bit cooler in terms of community outreach. Like Uh, This is the point where when the league is formed, it becomes, like I said, there was a split between people who wanted to stick with implant organizing and people who wanted to spread out into the community. And a lot of the founding drum members seemed to be the ones who were trying to push out into the community, while a lot of the rank and file members were like, no, this is our thing and we want it to represent us. Both valid, but Mike Hamlin started a reading group, which... I, the highest number I saw in attendance was at one point they had 800 members of their fucking reading group. That's a that's a reading. That's a yeah. reading, I don't even know what to call that. It's no reading group, though. <laughs> they would they would, they, they would organize it. to Like, I think that there were multiple meetings a week and they would organize it in smaller groups for each meeting. So they would, they would have somebody to lead the discussion over whatever they were reading that week. And dude, it, it, it sounded like it was big and it lasted a long time. Uh, it outlasted the league. Huh? Um, All right, cool. But like, it was also, it was, it was a little bit less, uh, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for here, but they, they welcomed, uh, anybody to come. It wasn't just drum members or anybody. It was, it was a community outreach thing and it was interracial. They weren't trying to say that this was also a black only, uh, organization, he wanted to to spread the word of revolution to the people you know god god fucking bless him and the, really the only criticism that i found valid sure but whatever was that it wasn't doing anything to improve the material conditions of the workers but you could even criticize that as saying that waking people up and bringing them into your ranks will improve the condition of your workers. But
3: yeah, I would argue that propaganda and education are incredibly important. Like you, well, have it to- was
1: less direct. And a lot of people were concerned about like, you know, going to work tomorrow, not raising awareness over the next 10 years. Yeah. But sure. uh, the reading group allowed them to develop ties or offshoots with a lot of other groups. Like I said before, they, they were kind of taking a, a, a rainbow coalition approach where they, wanted other organizations to organize other groups of people. The big one that I found was the Motor City Labor League. This one was a genuinely Marxist Leninist organization. I can't make out a whole lot. Like you can find a lot of documents from them online and I can't make a lot of f- some of it because they are so Marxist leninist that it's funny. Like they constantly talk about opera. If if you've read any Lenin, you'll get this. They constantly talk about how like so-and-so is an opportunist and this person is an opportunist. And I cannot find it again for the life of me, but I'm almost certain that in one of their releases, they refer to somebody as a Kautskyite. (laughs) So they call people uh, Philistines (laughs) also. We are in ninth. Yes, they do use that. Like, they use such overtly, like, cut and paste Leninist rhetoric. It's, it's just, it was hard to take seriously because I'm like, I feel like you read Lenin, but didn't really think about anything you just read. Like, these guys are in 1970s Detroit trying to overthrow the czar. God damn you, George Romney. <laughs> their, their heart's in the right place, but... but They're they... still
3: arguing with Kautsky. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Dude, okay, I I, I I won't swear that they called somebody a Kautskyite. Because I have actively been reading Lenin, so maybe I, I fucking mix some stuff up. But they use overtly, like, Leninist phrases. <laughs> it's it's funny. Now, now I'm just... A... But these guys, as best as I could tell, they were
2: the... I'm imagining them uh, walking across the frozen Detroit river to storm the winter palace of George Romney. Dude.
1: <laughs> Not far from it. Probably <laughs> a couple of things to be said about the motor city labor league. Cause they, they look like they were the other big group from this era. I couldn't find as much writing about them, but you know, the only reason that we probably know as much about the drums and the league as we do is that somebody wrote a book about it in like 1975. All I could really find about the Motor City Labor League was either from the book, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, where it's kind of talked about tangentially, or you can find some of the releases um, on various leftist websites that the Labor League released. They, they seem to outlast the league. They lasted into the mid-70s or longer, as far as I can tell. I'm not 100% sure, because like I said, there's not a ton of information that I found. Uh, they had more women in leadership roles that seemed awesome
2: compared to like other organizations or just a majority. of Yeah.
1: Well the league and some of the, the offshoot organizations had a tendency to really uh, espouse the importance of equality between uh, races and sexes and everything, but not do as much to actually advance those roles. Okay. So what was the, uh, I mean, was
0: there a lot of, female auto workers at the time, were they underrepresented compared to the amount of just total workers in those plants? Was it just a a matter of we're getting workers from these plants into this union movement and most of the people who work in these plants are men or was it more so them just not actually
1: doing what they said and not. I read plenty that indicated that there were a lot of female workers My impression was that they were employed in more stereotypically female roles at the time. Like maybe they were secretaries or, you know, the office gopher or whatever, but like less uh, production floor, but still with representation on the production floor. Like I read many accounts. uh, One of the things that some female manufacturing uh, people Expressed discontent with was that that like if you were a, a woman or a black woman in these plants, your complaints were taken even less seriously than anyone else's. You know, so that they there I don't know to what extent they were represented on the actual factory floors, but they were there.
0: Okay,
3: so they so they really they did deserve good. You know, well of course they did, but they they clearly had a presence and they deserve more representation even in the revolutionary unions. Which again said, "Hey, we want more equality, but like, weren't needed a little bit of an extra nudge to like, hey, that means more
1: more women in leadership here." Yeah, I mean, like, really, there, there's only one woman, and I'm, I'm she's next on the fucking list that I could find that played any larger role in all of this, and I don't even think she worked in one of the factories. She just worked in one of the other groups that seemed to spawn off of the uh, the reading group. Hmm. Hmm. So, like. You know, I, I think even if there weren't a ton of women on the actual factory floor, there were still enough women working in the factories and working in the offices and, and so on and so forth that they deserved representation. You know, because sexual harassment is an issue now, and pay discrepancies are an issue now. Imagine what they were fifty fucking years ago. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah ten times. It just
0: it. goes. It goes to show, like any organization, any union movement that is fighting for you know, equality and, uh, you know, better working conditions still can fall victim to the, you know, standard societal norms of underrepresenting, you know, one group or another, whether it be women or any other
1: group. Well, it was something. sadly more than just underrepresentation, but yeah. Uh, to, to finish up with the Motor City Labor League real quick, they, like, they actually had an official newspaper. And I couldn't figure out the appropriate joke to make here. But their newspaper was called Journey. So I can only assume that they were uh, born and raised in South Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Oh, that was good. Yeah, it was the best, was the best I could come up with. Because when I found out that there was an, a fucking radical newspaper called Journey in Detroit, I'm like, ah. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, I got to do something here.
0: Fun yeah.
2: fact, there is no... There is no South Detroit. I mean, South Detroit is Windsor, Ontario. Uh, This is something my dad always brings up whenever that song plays on the radio.
1: No, I actually know about this. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think they just chose that because it sounded cool in the song, you know?
1: No, they literally only chose it because it sounded good. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, man. Motor City Labor League, they were kind of all over the place. Like By their own admission early on, they didn't really have the best understanding of Marxist-Leninist ideals. And so they restructured themselves over the years to try to more, uh, to better adhere to like democratic centralist principles. But they they were sort of all over the place. Like here in a single sentence, I saw them express issue with quote unquote opportunists, revisionists, anti-Stalinists, Trotskyists, and complained about the revisionist ideas of CPUSA. Uh, Communist Party of America. And granted by the 70s the CPUSA was a fucking joke, but like they they really were adhering to the age old leftist principle of shit talking everyone they could think of.
3: Well, isn't isn't uh, anti-Stalinist and anti Oh, I'm having a brain fart. uh Trotskyist? Isn't that like you're like, well, that's just everybody at that point or is it not? I don't know. Were they Well, no,
1: they complained yeah. about anti-Stalinists and Trotskyists so yeah yeah so those are well i guess they're somewhat like you know a lot of trotskyists aren't big fans of stalin really not a lot of people are are big fans of stalin except for people who know the real stalin solid fucking dude there um (laughs) (laughs) do do i need to back down on the stalin shit (laughs) i i don't know (laughs) because i'm not going to it's it's fun if nothing else actually if you guys Complain about the Stalinist shit? I'm going to put you in the fucking gulag. <laughs> <laughs> Any complaints? That's uh, no, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to keep going with more organizations because some of these are great and some of these are hilariously stupid. They Another group that formed out of the book club was called People Against Racism. Uh, it was created by a dude, Frank Joyce. And really... He seemed like a solid dude who was putting forth a genuine effort to improve the material conditions of the people around him. He had experience organizing in the past, and so he was able to connect uh, a lot of national movements with Detroit local organizations. And I believe this dude was a lawyer or some sort of lawyer-adjacent profession. He aided in the trial of the the Chicago 7. So, you know this dude gets a pass. He seems solid. I got no overt criticisms of him,
2: by the way, real quick. Um, I was going to say, uh, if anyone has watched the, um, recent movie about the, uh, Chicago seven and Abby Hoffman,
1: I refuse to on principle.
2: Yeah. It is not, uh, accurate from what I understand. It's, um, who, who was the guy that made that movie? The West wing guy. What's his name? Uh, The
1: fact that the guy who made the West Wing made a movie about the Chicago 7 (laughs) was all I needed to hear to not watch it.
2: Yeah, no, real centrist (laughs) lib guy. Um, Check out the uh, the dollop did uh, much better. I think it was like a three part series on Abby Hoffman um, that goes into a lot better detail of, you know, how he was much more of a revolutionary than a, you know, boring lib
1: basically. I feel like they painted a really pretty picture of Abby Hoffman, and that's that's fine. The yippies were kind of a joke to me. I get that they had some solid ideals, but I don't feel like they had any very good tactics.
2: Yeah, I won't disagree with you on that. But Yeah,
1: I mean, I appreciate that back then there was just a lot of organizations that were trying to do, like, something, anything, but... Yeah, I kind of think of the yippies as sort of a fucking joke.
2: Well, and a lot of the ones that survived all turned into like investment bankers and stuff, too. So they're not the greatest. There's
1: a couple of solid ones that made it out. Yeah. Not being total scumbags. But yeah, most of them went full boomer and just managed to profit off of what whatever they had done. All right, I'm going to keep going here. Yeah, sorry. Uh, next, as I meant, as I kind of alluded to earlier, we have Ad Hoc. This one's kind of cool. This uh, There was a, a a police task force in Detroit around this time called Stress. It stood for Stop Robberies, Enjoy Safe Streets. And, I, like, honestly, this is going to come as a big surprise to anyone who is familiar with the police. But they were not good. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Fascinating, I know. They had, like, as best as, like, I didn't do too much of a deep dive on Stress, but... Everyone, ha- like, this was not a well-liked group. It seemed like a big part of their MO was to, like, set people up and create situations where maybe somebody would get robbed and just make themselves look like targets so that they could bust whoever tried to rob them. But their the instances of, of violence and murder that stress, like, experience were just off the charts for the Detroit Police Department at the time, like... In the relatively short lifespan, they they had dozens of like cop-related murders, tons of issues of violence, and really it was it was a, a thing that the police were doing for whatever fucking reason to try and look busy and whatever. But they were just shitbags. Ad hoc hmm. was an early cop watch. Their whole thing was monitoring cops and trying to like uh, keep track of instances of police violence and Honestly, like, without being able to find a ton of information about them, they seemed fucking solid. Uh, the lady who founded Ad Hoc was a lady named Sheila Murphy, and her background was kind of cool. She was of Irish-American descent. I think she was, like, for, uh, second or third generation Irish. Her dad was a fucking Catholic anarchist from, like, the 40s and 50s. It worked on a, on a Catholic anarchist newspaper called The Catholic Worker. as best yeah, The as Catholic find, Worker. There, yeah do you know it <laughs> yeah i've come yeah, across i before. was surprised i only done- learned this weekend that that fucker's still in print
3: um yeah and they did a lot of anti-war stuff and i mean they are they have always been like one of the most hardcore leftist groups out there like they're you're like holy shit you you broke into what like they'll break into like oh we'll break into a fucking nuclear weapons facility and you're just like oh okay
1: shit all right no shit that's fucking <laughs> awesome
3: yep so the Catholic
1: worker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pretty legit. Uh, the, 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 the lady who formed ad hoc, her dad was, uh, he worked for, for the Catholic worker in like the fifties. And apparently nice. was, was an, a, a Catholic fucking anarchist for the duration of his life. That's where she picked up her fucking ideals from. Cool.
0: Very her cool.
1: Kind of became a bit reformist later on. I have a whole section of all of the reformists that come out of this, but yeah, that's, that's ad hoc. Now we're going to get to the one that I don't know. I strictly put it on here to make fun of the white Panthers. Oh, this sounds real bad. I've, it's not real bad. It's just real dumb. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was a uh, John Sinclair who I think was like a somewhat well-known, known poet or whatever. He was the manager for the CA uh, for the MC five, he was uh, part of the Yippies. Honestly, everything that I could tell about the dude, he seemed well-intentioned, but genuinely stupid. <laughs> I
2: can <laughs> identify with that.
1: Yeah, like, it's... <laughs> okay, just just to put this out there, if I say to you that there's an organization called the White Panthers, what's your first inclination <laughs> as to what that group is about?
2: i don't know sounds kind of like blue lives matter
1: yeah if you're guessing that they sound like a white supremacist organization you're making the same guess that a lot of people did in the 70s (laughs) apparently that's good marketing apparently this dude had the constant burden of having to explain to people that he wasn't a white supremacist (laughs) which (laughs) i don't know the whole thing seems pretty poorly thought out whatever to his credit, as as best as I can tell from when he was a yippie, he did bomb a CIA office in Ann Arbor. All right, all right. I mean, that's yeah. something. Yeah, except that now we're going to get into some uh, more background knowledge that, like, this actually would have required some real digging to find if I hadn't already been a big fan of uh, Donald Cox's autobiography. So Donald Cox was the field marshal for the Black Panther Party for years. And there was a while when he was in exile in Algiers with the more famous Black Panther Party member, Eldridge Cleaver. So in Donald Cox's autobiography, there is a story where, like, I forget where all abouts they were traveling. I loaned out my copy of it, of the autobiography, so I couldn't reference it. But they, like, talk about how John Sinclair shows up in Algiers because he's on the run after the CIA announced that they were looking for, or not the CIA, the police Announced that they were looking for him in relation to the bombing of the CIA office. And Donald Cox's uh, depiction of John Sinclair is even dumber than I have portrayed him. He sounds like a dude who really just wanted to kind of cause havoc. Like he was probably well-intentioned, but he just kept getting high and disappearing (laughs) and causing, like, you, you got to figure in Algier, it was a safe spot for a lot of revolutionaries who were on the run. It was similar to Cuba at the time. Like a lot of black Panther party members fled to Cuba, fled to Algier and they had a fucking, uh, you know, like an, uh, not an office. What am I thinking of where you have diplomats and an shit? Embassy?
0: An
1: embassy? An embassy. Yeah. I, I think that they had like their own small embassy in Algier because the government was friendly towards revolutionaries who were, you know, seeking asylum. But towards the end of that, they were kind of getting on rocky grounds and Sinclair was just a fucking problem. So yeah, you you can read Donald Cox's autobiography. I am not going to say the name of it because uh, I'm white and it has words in it, but it's a fucking yeah, great read. It's a really easy read. So, you know, if, if you get a chance, pick that up. It's cool.
0: We don't make you
2: fight fire to fire, bitch. We make you fight fire to water, bitch. We're going to fight racism, not racism, but we're going to fight in
0: solidarity. We feel we're not going to fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we're going to fight in socialism. Amazingly, or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemispheres. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour,
1: we are gonna see some serious shit. The free market mythology it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers, applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interests and wealth accumulation, will we produce, produce the best, best results, results for, all for all of us. us through something called the Invisible
2: Hand.
0: (laughs) What are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.